going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 from verse 3. We're not exactly racing through this book and it's going to be a little bit slower because next Sunday um, what I've decided is it's a family service in the, in the morning and I'm, I'm kind of wanting to get through Daniel really by Easter what I'm going to say in Daniel anyway so I, I'm going to do Daniel at night so it's just to, to let you know that. But Ephesians 1 from verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you for the, the riches of your word that are beyond our human attempts to, to fully grasp. And Lord, we acknowledge that with these amazing truths laid out by, for us by the Apostle Paul. But Lord, we pray that, that you'll give us a degree of understanding. You'll give us understanding that enables us to live those lives that bring glory to your name. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when I was a, a young boy, I enjoyed swimming. That is, I loved being in the water though I hated getting into the water. Cold water and me just don't get on together. Elaine, she can glide in there and doesn't show a bit of worry. Me, it's absolute terror. But one thing I've always been afraid of, though, is heights. But through time at the swimming pool I went to as a young boy, I I managed quite happily to jump off the lower diving board. Now, gradually, this instilled in me a growing sense of self-confidence and so I began to look at the high diving board imagining what it would look like imagining how impressive it would be as I jumped off even better learn to dive off that high diving board what a sight well eventually the day came when in a moment of impulse I decided this was the day I was going to do it. Going to do it. So I climbed up the steps, it was a long way, to the high diving board. And cautiously, I made my way to the end of the board. I squared my shoulders, looked down from this great height. My moment had come. I stood there for about a minute. It felt as if every eye on the swimming pool was on me. Finally, it came. I could stand there no longer. What did I do? I got down on my hands and knees and crawled back along the diving board. What a sight. I was absolutely petrified. You see, I just stood there until my fear of heights overwhelmed my fear of humiliation. By the way, I've kind of dramatised it a wee bit, but 
I don't think anybody else in the pool that day actually even noticed. So at the time, I felt as if this was going to be in the front page of the Daily Record accompanied by pictures. Well, right now, actually, I feel a little bit as if I, I did back then. For if I, I love the water, I love preaching far, far more. It is hard work, but I do love seeking to uncover and to understand the truths of God's word and then share what I've learned with God's people. I love it. I really do. But tonight, preaching on election and predestination Truths that we can never understand fully, that are beyond our finite minds, but seeking to make it as clear as possible that we, so that you can understand at least what I believe. Well, that is scary, and that is a challenge. But I want to just reassure you, don't worry, I'm not at any point going to get on my hands and knees and try and sneak off this platform. Do I have to say it is a temptation. However, before we, we move on to explore the great, great truths that we find in this passage, I want to just first take a little bit of time to give a, a, a general kind of introduction to Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. And you know, it may interest you to know that we are undoubtedly right to treat this as one section. Because you see, while this is broken down commonly into five sentences in our English translation, yet the reality is that in the original Greek, this is actually all one sentence. No full stop running to over 200 words. Now the nature of, of this passage has led some to speculate that it's, it's based on some early church hymn or, or form or order for worship. However, while there is certainly a degree of order and structure here, and there is a sense of development, for example, everything that is said in these verses is clearly built around the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead. So in verse 4 to 6, the Father is the source of blessing, who blesses us in his choice, in his election. Then in verse 7 to 12, the Son is the sphere of this blessing. As it is because of, our, of His death for our sin, as we put our faith in this great sacrificial act, that we make this blessing of God ours. We are blessed in Him because of Him as we put our faith in Him. And the nature of this blessing is spiritual. Verse 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit is the channel through whom flows into our lives, into our hearts and soul, the riches of God's blessing won for us in Christ. So there is then a definite degree of order in this section. Undoubtedly there is. However, someone like Harold Hona, who's written the finest, most uh, detailed commentary on, a, on Ephesians that I think is imaginable, he comes to the conclusion that despite this, that there is the absence of a neatly divisible structure that can be found in a hymn or recitation that was carefully thought out. And that what rather we find here, again in his words, is a spontaneous utterance of praise to God. 
You see, the senses that Paul was sitting, writing or dictating this letter, and he began praising God, and once he started, he couldn't stop. The words just cascade from his lips. There's no time for sentences or full stops. No time even to draw breath. So while grammatically in Greek, this might be, as Edward Norden, a New Testament expert, puts it, the most monstrous sentence conglomeration ever found in the Greek language, yet at another level, spiritually, this is one of the most incredible expressions of praise found anywhere. So let's then open this up together. Let's look at God's blessing. The what, the why, the how of God's blessing that leads Paul here into this wonderful outburst of praise. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look first at God's blessing and then we're going to move on to look at how he blesses, in particular, in election. So God's blessing, focusing on verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, now literally, strictly speaking, the way that this verse begins is not praise be, but rather blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. But there is a significant difference, though, between what what blessing means in relation to God and what blessing means for us at the human level. For you see, when we bless God, we're not giving God a benefit. We're not giving him something he needs to exist because God is self-sufficient, all-sufficient. Rather, as we bless God, we are recognizing him for who he is. We are giving him the worship and the adoration that he is due and alone is worthy of. So, praise be is probably a more helpful term. Because you see, it gets us away from any idea of our praise being something that God's need that God needs. And certainly, as we bless God and as we praise Him, this brings Him joy. For God loves nothing more than the praises of His people. But needs God needs nothing, for He is the all-sufficient One. But you see, when we talk about blessing in relation to us as human beings, and particularly as believers, well then the picture is very different. For we are needy. And God has blessed us and has given us spiritually, given us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. In fact, I find it interesting that the literal, original meaning of the word we translate into English as blessing here is actually speak well of. So you see, we bless someone by speaking well of them. Now we can see how that fits in with our praise of God. Well, the way that I believe that it relates to God speaking well of us, God blessing us, 
is you see that God's words, God's thoughts, carry with them power. Power. For remember, it was by his word, it was as God spoke, that the whole creation came into being. So you see, as God speaks well of us, that has effects. That impacts on our lives. Now, in the Old Testament, God speaking well of, God thinking well of someone, God blessing, that was related to the physical world. To things like health and prosperity and success. But in the New Testament, as here in Ephesians, the emphasis changes. The physical does not disappear. No, it doesn't. But it fades way into the background. And into the foreground comes the spiritual. The primary expression then of God's blessing in Christ is spiritual. He blesses us spiritually. He blesses us at the very core of our being. As in Christ, he gives us things like Freedom and peace and joy and love and power. Freedom from the rule of sin. Then peace with God that leads to peace within and that enables us to live at peace with one another. Joy. Because we have been forgiven and we know that in Christ we need fear no more. Love, knowing that undeserving as we are, we are loved with an infinite generous love, a love that then sets us free to love others in return. And power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that brought Jesus from death to life. God blesses us with this spiritual power as we come to him in Christ. And this spiritual blessing Knowing, experiencing this and so much more in our spirit. Any true believer knows makes all of this world's wealth and success fade into insignificance in that context. Now in the, these verses we're, we're looking at and in the verses that follow and we'll look at in the future up to verse 13, verse 14, a number of these great blessings of the gospel are set out for us in, in well-known, classic, biblical terminology and always used brilliantly by Paul. Here, in these verses, things like election and adoption. Later on in these other verses, redemption and forgiveness and the hope of glory Christ brings. But what's made clear though, here and throughout, is that all of these blessings, the blessings poured out upon us by the Father, come to us, verse 3, in Christ. Verse 5, through Jesus Christ. You see, as we put our faith in Christ, then we receive Him. We receive His blessings, the benefits that He brings. Not as, in a sense, some kind of added extra. As some kind of tack on to our lives. You know, as if we, the essential us, is, is kind of standing there with these benefits piled up beside us like some kind of set of luggage. No, it's not that. No, when we, by faith in Jesus Christ, trust in him, and Christ comes into our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
then we are, in a sense, infused with Jesus. To the extent that his life experience becomes ours. All that he has achieved for us becomes ours. That's why Paul can say in his various letters in in numerous places, things like that we died with Christ, that we were buried and raised with him, that we ascended with him, and that one day that we will reign with him when he comes in his glory. With this, by the way, and incidentally dealing with really the death blow to the view of those who say that the biblical teaching of election leads to to careless Christian living in the sense that, you know, if God chooses us, if I've been chosen by God, if we're saved ultimately by God's choice as the result of his eternal and changeable decree, then why worry about how we live? Live how we want because, hey, we're saved anyway. But you see, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the spiritual reality of what becoming a Christian is actually all about. We are in Christ. We are infused with Christ. And no one who has died to sin in Christ, no one who has experienced the resurrection life of the Spirit in Christ, no one who looks forward to the coming glory of Christ, No one in that position can sin easily with no guilt, no sins of conscience. This, though, is the fundamentals of God's blessing. The nature, the scope of God's blessing. This is how he blesses us, as Paul puts it, in the heavenly realms. Which is, of course, not about a place here but rather is about the the unseen, the spiritual world that our eyes are open to as we come to faith in Christ. That world of of spiritual conflict in which, as Ephesians 6, 12 tells us, the principalities in that sphere continue to operate, but over which God still reigns. And God allows us, by virtue of these blessings he shares with us in Christ, To share in his victory. To live in his victory. That's the fundamentals of God's blessing. We're now going to move on to concentrate on on one particular blessing. The blessing of God the Father that Paul focuses on here. How he blesses in the election. From verse 4. Just get a wee drink. From verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. What truth! How can we possibly grasp this? How can we understand this. Well, let me tell you, with our finite minds, never fully. But let me do the best I can to help you here. Beginning with what it means. Trying to to put together, in a sense, some kind of definition of election and predestination. So what Paul tells us here, then, is that back before time began, back in eternity, 
God chose in his mind to put us in Christ together. As John Stott puts it, he determined to make us who did not yet exist his own children through the redeeming work of Christ which had not taken place. God chose us. God chose to save us. But but why, we ask? Well, there's only one reason that the Bible gives. And it's not because we are worthy. It's not because God saw something special in us, some intrinsic goodness or gift of some kind in us that attracted him to us. No, it's not that. It's because of love and only love. As it says in verse 4, in love. With the love that's referred to here, the word that's used based on that, that special New Testament word for love, for that unique kind of love that Jesus Christ brought into this world. Love, not for the worthy and deserving, but for the unworthy and the undeserving. That is the love of God, rooted in the fact that He is by nature a God of love, a God who wants nothing more than to love. A God who created us, in fact, because of his desire for fellowship, for relationship with us, and so that he could lavish his love upon us. A God, then, whose heart was broken as we abused our free will and chose to use it to rebel and turn away from him rather than to love him back in return. But you see, God knowing what we would do and knowing the barrier that this sin, our choice to sin, would raise between us and him, he, in love, chose to save for himself a people out of rebellious mankind. And he chose to send his son, God in human flesh. He chose and the son willingly came to pay the price of our sin by giving his sinless life on the cross to win us salvation that we might be saved from eternal death from hell from judgment now at this point some people argue that this isn't just this just isn't fair that God should save some and not save others that he shouldn't save all well let me make a point about justice But what is actually just in this context? Justice would be for all mankind to be judged and condemned. No answer to give to God's charge and no hope for the future. Because you see, we sinned of our choice. We chose to fling the love of an all-powerful God into his face. And as sinners, by nature... There is nothing that we can do about our sin. So you see, the fact that some are condemned, that's not unjust. What is actually amazing and incredible is that any are saved. That is a miracle. It is a miracle of God's amazing grace. So why did God choose to save us? 
Why? Because of love. Because of his incomparable love. But why did he choose to save me? Why did he choose to save you? Why did he choose us who know him in particular? Well, again, it's definitely not because there's anything special about us. It's not about anything. We can take pride in. And I've got to say, I don't believe there is an answer here that fits within the the finite framework of, of human logic. And believe me, I have tried to find an answer. During my training for ministry, I almost drive myself crazy and some of my lecturers as well, trying to come to a logical conclusion as to, as to why God saves the people that he does. And I only found any peace when I moved outside the confines of logic and started to think of, of God the creator as an artist, as a builder. Which, as you look at the world around us, you can see undoubtedly that he is. You see, then when I began to think of of each one of us in in some unique way that we can never understand. But each one of us forming part of that great masterpiece of humanity that that God is putting together. Well, that helped me. It helped me and I hope it helps you. But I'm sure that, that many of us have got various other questions about this area, this particular area of the Bible's teaching, like, for instance, what about free will? What about free will? How does this teaching of the Bible, that we were chosen and predestined for salvation before time began, how does this fit in with our human free will? Something that's so important in society today and with what the Bible teaches about human free will and choice. Well, you see, here I think we need to be clear about just what free will means from a Christian biblical perspective. In the if by free will, we mean a freedom to make choices that are totally unfettered and uninfluenced by anyone or anything other than ourselves, then I don't think the Bible knows or teaches free will in that way. Rather, the picture of the the human will that the Bible presents, I think is more like the, the picture that that Luther draws in in his famous book, The Bondage of the Will. And that is is of mankind, man, as a horse with two riders. And so you see, these two riders, God and the evil one, constantly, they're at work in our lives through various agencies, working along different avenues, seeking to influence, seeking to exercise control in our lives, seeking to get us to make the decisions, to make the choices they want us to make in life. So again, if by freedom we mean total, absolute freedom, then I don't believe we are free in that sense. But to use the words of Wayne Grudem, the American theologian, he says, if by freedom we mean the power to make willing choices that have real effects, then we certainly are free in that sense. So you see, when people refuse the gospel, when they turn their back on salvation, well, it's not that they're forced and constrained by God to do this. They do this willingly. But 
when we come to faith, though, there is an extra dimension that God's election, that God's power brings in. In the sense that although we are never forced by God into faith, and though it can be a battle, yet it is always a willing step that we take. We're willing to be saved. However, though, willing as we are, we cannot get over the line into faith by our own strength, by our own power. Not because, you see, we are in bondage to sin. We are held in the chains of sin. We are held by the powers of evil. So it's only by God's power that we can be set free. It's only as the God who chose us and predestined us. It's only as He works in our lives, in the power of the Spirit, in His sovereign electing power, that we can be free to come to Jesus. So as it says in the next chapter of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. But there's a, a different question some might have here about this concept of God elected and choosing some for salvation, and that is, what about what about those passages that say that, that God died for all men, all humanity? How do we respond to this? Well, first I think by saying and we have to say that God takes no joy or delight when people turn their back on him. God is, is never willing in, in that sense, in the sense that it is pre, his preferred option, something that brings him joy. Never. When men and women choose to reject him and so willingly choose judgment and destruction. That breaks God's heart. But remember, that is a willing choice that people make. And as for the all, as for those texts that, that speak of, of Christ's death for all people or for the, the world, well here let me just quote to you from uh, the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, a, a great book on the classic understanding of the death of Christ. But this is what is said in that book. That in many cases, the all in question should be taken to mean all without distinction. That is all kinds of people. And not all without exception. That is every person who has ever lived. Now you see, thinking about that, that God chooses to save all different kinds of people, I think that sort of fits in with what I suggested earlier. In thinking of God's election in terms of, of God the creator as an artist, as a builder, bringing us together with all our different imperfections and all our feelings and building from us a humanity that one day will be his masterpiece. That is his church. Well, let's finish by looking briefly at one last issue in relation to election. That is what it leads to. And what it leads to is first adoption. Verse 5, he predestined us 
to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. You see, this is the destiny. This is the predestiny that God chose for us in Jesus Christ. That through Christ, we may not only become citizens of God's new community, which we most certainly are, but even more that through Christ, we become members, part of the royal family of heaven. God's own family. Now you see, when when Paul talks of adoption here, what he most likely had in mind was the Roman system of adoption for the people he was writing to lived at that time under Roman law. And there were some significant features about adoption as it was practiced in Roman culture. Because you see, within a Roman family, the father had absolute power and authority. To the extent that he could kill a member of his family and that would not be considered a crime. Second, once someone was formally adopted in Roman culture, then his natural father no longer had any authority over him. That authority switched absolutely at that point to his adopted father. Now, do you see what this means for the Christian? You see what this means for the person who God has chosen and called to faith in Christ? It means that when we put our trust in Christ, that Satan's rule, his compelling authority over us, is now broken. And we are now under God's authority. And in practical terms, what this means is that though Satan can still tempt us, and though he still does have power, yet it is no longer in Christ a dominating power. We can choose not to sin. And what this also means is that as an adopted child in in Roman culture would acquire the status and privileges and benefits of his new family, well, so too do we in Christ. We taste then of all that adoption means in our lives now, the rich blessing of God with all of this to be fully realized when Christ comes again. Well, finally, or at least it's all we've got time to to look at, what election also leads to is praise and glory. Praise and glory being given to God. Through the holy lives that God's people, if they're living as they should, are living now. And through that beauty, that beauty that at the end of time will be revealed in God and in the people he's called to him. This should and this will lead to the praise of God, of his glory reverberated throughout eternity. You see, this is election. This is how God blesses us in election. You know, this is a doctrine perhaps because of the way that sometimes it's been presented that many people shy away from. Because it summons up for them the the picture of God as a, a cold and clinical, judgmental figure. Well, you see, when that's the case, then we are misunderstanding election. For the facts are that this is a doctrine of the Bible. 
that's all about love and security, about holiness and glory. The picture that it presents to us of our God is of an all-powerful, glorious, loving Heavenly Father. The Father who loves us, the Father who called us, and the Father who, because of that, will never let us go. Last week I started with a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. I thought this week, well, let's finish with one. And this is a quote about the difference that the doctrine of election and predestination makes, or it should make. It produces humility. The the effect of being loved by eternal love. It gives a new sense of dignity. The effect of knowing God himself has loved us. It anchors us in a deep security. God's grip of me goes back into eternity. And it makes us want to sing the doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that as we are here tonight, maybe feeling so small and humble and insignificant, we want to thank you that you, the Almighty God, the Father of creation, that before time and creation began, in your heart you chose us for yourself. And your love for us stretches beyond our lives now. It stretches back to that moment and it stretches forward into the eternity and the glory that we will know with Jesus Christ. Lord, in ourselves we are weak and humble and broken and frail. But in you, we are going to be your glorious people. And for that, we give you our praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen.